Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, November the 6th, 2023. About a year ago, uh, we did a show with Liz Wheel. Um, uh, a distinguished journalist on uh, Robert Hansen, who she believes was America's most damaging spy. Uh, she has a book out, a, a Spy in Plain Sight, which has done very well. She's an interesting character. Uh, she is the daughter of an FBI agent, and she find or she found the whole Hansen narrative particularly interesting on many fronts. Uh, Liz Wheel is not alone. Somebody else has found the Hansen narrative particularly fascinating. Uh, and he is my guest today. Everyone will be familiar with Major Garrett. He's one of America's most distinguished journalists and most visible journalists. He's also the host of a fascinating and very successful new podcast, Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. And uh, Major Garrett is joining us from Washington, D.C. today. Major, what is it about Harry, uh, Hansen that you found so interesting? Why have you dedicated so much time to this podcast show? Andrew, it's great to be with you. The simple answer is I found Robert Hansen fascinating to me because I have lived and worked as a reporter in Washington since 1990, mostly covering Congress campaigns and the American presidency, which means I've come across a fair number of rather adept liars. I'm not suggesting that that's a negative. Politics is about shaping perceptions. It's about shaping your own reality. It's about spinning the truth to your greatest advantage in whatever context you need it to be advantageous in. And I came across Robert Hansen and I said, okay, even by my standards, which are sometimes infused with well-earned cynicism, Robert Hansen is a staggering liar, a liar who not only lies to the bureau that hired him, the FBI, the country that employed him, the wife who married him, the colleagues who trusted him, but probably most importantly, he lied to himself over and over and over again. And if I've learned anything in life, Andrew, it's the most diabolical lies are the ones we tell ourselves. And so at that scale, that sort of frenzied yet hyper-controlled scale of deception, external and internal, Robert Hansen was beyond compelling for me. Have you always been interested in, in spy narratives, both fictional and non-fictional? You've always been a fan of, of espionage? Only at the margins. I've never read a spy novel. I never read one before I started covering this Robert Hansen. Yeah, case. you never read a spy no, novel? No, I read a couple of James Bond novels, which I don't think are classic spy novels necessarily. Um, and I certainly, like every American and probably made a great number of people around the world, love the Bond movie franchises. I have my favorite Bond actors, of course. Um, but I would say in general, <clears throat> the spy surveillance world, I was always several three to four dimensions separated from it. I didn't cover it here in Washington. If I did, it was only by bumping into it accidentally, a congressional hearing or some something that arose and got the White House's attention negatively. Uh, Edward Snowden, of course, but that's not a real espionage case per se. 
So one of the strengths and also one of the weaknesses of my curiosity about this was I didn't know very much about counterintelligence, intelligence, the methodologies, the language, the history, the big names, the infamous names. All of that was part of my learning curve. So I brought a kind of hyper energetic curiosity to it, which I think was an advantage. I brought a naivete to it, which I think in net net was an advantage. But there were, of course, a lot of things I didn't understand and a lot of reporting I had to do to get myself more accustomed to what the story was about, what it wasn't about, and how to distill it at its best level, which I think we tried to do and I hope we succeeded. Well, Major, tell me about this man, uh, Robert Hansen, this remarkably accomplished liar, uh, a fabricator of truth, uh, who knitted his own reality. Uh, what, what do you make of him and, and what should we make of him? What does your show tell us? So the most important thing to make of him is he did tremendous damage to the United States at the height of the Cold War, meaning he handed off information that compromised numerous technological and human espionage efforts of the United States government. He handed over information that led directly to the assassination of three recruited Soviets who were helping the United States. Of course, during the Cold War, both governments did that. Spy novels are full of that. Spy stories are full of that. All of that recruitment and holding and managing of Agents in place, that's the proper terminology. Double agent isn't. Agent in place is the proper terminology. And Robert Hansen did all that deep damage. Hundreds of millions, possibly more than a billion dollars of U.S. programs compromised human and technological, plus the deaths of at least three people, maybe more. So that's the sort of structural harm part of the Robert Hansen story. But one of the things that make it a story worth telling in eight episodes is the human reaction to who Bob Hansen was. He was not well-liked within the FBI, but he did have friends, good friends, who found him philosophically interesting, who found him really smart in a sort of outside-the-box, creative sort of way, and they felt deeply befriended by Robert Hansen. And so his betrayal of them was a much larger story than his betrayal of country or bureau. To them, it was deeply injurious. It hit them, as they told us, like a sucker punch, as if they had been punched either in the face or in the belly by someone that they trusted and never, ever in their wildest imagination would think he would turn against them and betray them. And it's that part of the story that I think carries tremendous emotional weight, quite on top of the more statistical dry weight of the damage done. As it happens, last night, I wasn't preparing actually for this, although I should have been. I watched Errol Morris's new movie uh, documentary about John le Carré, The Pigeon Tunnel, which uh, if you haven't seen it, is well worth looking at, especially for le Carré's particular own personal obsession with, um, with spying and with lying. And there was quite a lot of attention paid to Kim Philby, of course, mm -hmm. who's the quintessential upper-class yes. British spy. Is there something, I mean, Hansen seems the reverse of, of, of Philby on a, Absolutely. On a cultural and a social level. Is there something quintessentially about uh, American, about uh, Hansen as this, this damaging spy? Is he the equivalent of Philby in the American context? I think he might be. I think he's pretty close because he is a suburban kid in Chicago, Illinois, 
living in a uh, largely white, economically upwardly mobile suburb right near O'Hare Airport. If you're familiar with that enormous airport outside of Chicago, yeah, we're all familiar, unfortunately, with that major. <laughs> we stuck there one time or another. Um, and his upbringing is undisturbed by economics privation. He's not impoverished at all. His father is a well-known, somewhat highly regarded, though there's a whiff of infamy, possibly. He's a lieutenant in the Chicago Police Department. He owns a racehorse, which is kind of un unusual. And it wasn't really clear how he came to own the rain ho racehorse, if that was all on the up and up or legit. We couldn't really figure that out one way or the other, but there were rumors about that. Anyway, stable childhood. He had a rough relationship with his father, but not in any way that would be thought of as so damaging as to wreck a young man. His father put him down a lot, didn't give him a lot of love and attention. That's kind of common for any child raised in the 40s or 50s. That's not an unusual narrative in America at all. But he was damaged and traumatized by his father. Uh, kind of drifts around uh, in the college years, finally lands with the FBI, and very soon after landing with the FBI, he decides to volunteer to the Soviets. And no one really knows exactly why. There isn't, a, I don't think, a singular reason for it. I think there were reasons that accrued over time. Money was kind of an issue, but not the predominant one. Resentment with the FBI bureaucracy is certainly one that hardened over time. But it's hard to pinpoint that as the absolute originating reason. Uh, he had a kind of low-level James Bond fixation that might have played into it. He might have wanted to become somewhat infamous and famous over time, and that might be a rivalry with his father, though unexpressed at the time. So there are a lot of complex psychological motivations that intertwine. I've just finished writing episode eight, our final episode, and I try to help my audience come to my understanding of what the why is, because if you're going to take this journey with me, you ought to have some expectation. I might know what, what the answer is. And I don't have a comprehensive, holistic, this and only this answer. I think it's many, many things tied up into it. You can't say that Hansen was an elitist or well-born or had that sort of hyper-intellectual disdain for his home country that some people in espionage circles generate internally over time. He was an FBI agent, kind of through and through. Um, and with certainly with an FBI history. Lee Wheel says he's the most damaging spy in U.S. history. There are various answers to that question, but he is undoubtedly the most damaging spy in FBI history. And I think the classic part of the Hansen story is everything that made the FBI internally weak, he exploited on behalf of the Soviets, and everything that made the FBI strong externally he radiated to make himself look like he was a stand-up stalwart member of the FBI. We are speaking with Major Garrett, a distinguished American television journalist, writer, the author of a number of books, and now the host of a hit um, new podcast on Robert Hansen, uh, America's perhaps most notorious spy. Uh, Major, 
if every young boy was bullied by their father who wanted to become James Bond, became a spy, I think most American men would be spies. Exactly. It's interesting. You know, one I connection with Carré is, yeah, we'd all be. Uh, if um, one connection with Carré, Le Carré is his father also owned racehorses, but his father was a, uh, a scammer. Uh, Hansen's father, he wasn't a, a criminal anyway. No, no, father. not at all. Not at all. But, um, he was a, a well-known um, lieutenant in the Chicago Police Department, which meant he had visibility into a lot of activities. Uh, and again, the record on this is not definitive, but there was conversations about him that suggested he might have not always done things on the up and up. But there was never a scandal. There was never anything published. There was never anything in his record in the Chicago Police Department. So that just might have been envy or a sense, well, if you're in the Chicago Police Department, you probably know a lot of things and you can probably get a lot of things done. Some of them might not always be uh, according to every single interpretation of the rules. But by all achievable and knowable standards, uh, he was a Chicago Police Department lieutenant and certainly well known in the neighborhood. And that also sometimes accrued to the benefit of, of his son, Robert Hansen. Major, um, what about institutional rivalries? As an FBI agent, some people might think, well, what did he know about international espionage? Certainly this event must have had uh, old J. Edgar Hoover spinning in his grave. I think he's probably been spinning ever since he died. Uh, was there an element of rivalry between the FBI and the CIA? And did this play a role in some form or other? There was always a rivalry between the two agencies. What's interesting about the Robert Hansen case is that for a good period of time, while Hansen was still operating as an agent in place for the Soviets and then the Russians, the FBI and the CIA called a kind of truce and worked together in pursuit of finding what was clearly a problem within the larger U.S. intelligence community. What was that problem? Things were leaking out. Things that Hansen was giving continued to leak out and do this damage. And so they worked together, that is to say the FBI and CIA, to try to find the mole or moles with some success. Along the way, someone named Aldrich Ames is caught up in this dragnet and convicted. Aldrich James worked for the CIA, highly, mm. highly damaging spy. And within this continued effort, that's when things began to shift a little bit. Yes, the FBI and CIA were working together, but the FBI agents kept saying to themselves, well, you know, CIA was one of your guys that was really doing a lot of nasty stuff. And we got him. We got him together, but he was one of your guys. Don't ever forget that. Matter of fact, we're going to never let you forget it was one of your people. And that led them down the road uh, to one of the episodes that we have in our podcast, Agent of Betrayal, called The Wrong Man. And you can understand what that's about. It's about someone who was caught up in the mole hunt, who worked at the CIA, who was completely innocent, but who was hounded. That was the October the 22nd, uh, 26th. And of course, I think there are six up now. Everyone should subscribe if they have. And it's compelling. I, I was listening earlier. It's, it's a wonderful series you put together. Yeah. Um, and his, his name was Brian Kelly. And one of the reasons that the FBI was so aggressive about Brian Kelly was the institutional sense that it was always the CIA that was causing this problem. That was fused in the FBI mind, if it didn't already exist, by Aldrich James. 
Well, Brian Kelly wasn't the mole. Robert Hansen was the mole. The one of the fascinating dimensions of this is because of his position within the FBI, there were times, not always, but there were occasions in which Robert Hansen is sitting in a conference room along all these people who are chasing the mole, listening to all their conversations about who the mole might be and what their next investigative tact was. And all the while, he's sitting there knowing it's him. Yeah, I wish we could get inside his head. Do we? Should we give any credit to the Soviets or the Russians? I mean, we, we tend to mock them. They would seem slightly incompetent, especially given their disaster in the Ukraine. But they, they, they pulled this thing off, didn't they? So I think there are two different periods of history. So you can look at Ukraine, you can look at modern Russia and say things that uh, don't seem to fit and don't work and have a lot of hype around them. But in people that we talked to who were deeply involved in the counterintelligence and intelligence world, 70s and 80s, they give the Soviets a lot of credit for thinking this through and working it at a very elaborate level and being much better players and being much more sophisticated in their analysis and recruitment mechanisms and methods than the United States was. None of that really came into play for Hansen. Hansen walked in. Hansen was, in the terminology of espionage, a walk-in, which is unusual. He was not a recruit. He was not somebody identified and then pulled in ever gradually by the Soviets, which obviously happened, and we did with people who worked within the Soviet government. So he was a walk-in. And unusually, and this is another hook in the story, I would say, Hansen, almost singularly as an agent in place, meaning someone who had a very secure, high visibility part of the U.S. government working for the Soviets, ran them as much as they ran him. And in the terminology of espionage and surveillance and spies, the idea of running someone is crucial. How you run somebody, how do you run a recruit? How do you manage them? How do you manipulate them? How do you keep them happy? All these things were typically done by the recruiting government or the government for which you're an agent in place. And you make all the decisions about those mechanisms. How do you run them? How do you keep them happy? How do you pay them? All these sorts of things. Hansen controlled that himself. He communicated in a very specific way with the Soviets, gave them specific instructions, and told them what he was going to do. And they would not have ordinarily agreed to any of this, except for the fact that from the jump, what Hansen provided was so golden, so unbelievably valuable, and so readily confirmable because of other things he would follow up with that they knew they were basically sitting on a gold mine. And so all their other instincts and inclinations basically faded away and they let Hansen call the shots, which made him unique both for them and in the history of US uh, agents in place. I assume the Russians and the Soviets must have suspected that this was a fake gold mine, that he was a double agent, especially since he walked in. There, were, there had to have been that sort of internal conversation. Uh, but it quickly subsided when among the very first things Hansen provided was evidence that confirmed what Aldrich Ames provided about mm. Soviets in America who were agents in place for us. That's when I talk about the direct evidence of three people being assassinated or executed. Uh, that's what happened. They had it from Ames, then they get it from Hansen, and it layers over perfectly. And they're like, whoa. 
this stuff is really, really good. And then Hansen kept providing and kept providing and everything added up. And so they knew they had someone of unusual access and unusual visibility who also conducted things in a way that they assumed initially was kind of sophisticated. Then they came to realize was by the standards of Americans they had previously dealt with pretty high level. And he was paid for all this. I mean, he was, if, if there is a way to make sense of what he was doing, it was um, to get him cash. Is that fair? I mean, he there was no ideological element. Here. No, he didn't have no, no, exactly. And I'm really glad you raised that because that's a super important point because that is sometimes a motivation, ideological fellow traveling. I'm a believer. I, I've turned against my government. I believe your method, yeah. even though you're an enemy of my government, I believe your way is the better way. The Philby, uh, Kim Philby, for all his moral dubiousness, he was a believer. Mm -hmm. Hanson, there's no indication that he was in that sense. I'll get to a nuanced part of that in just a second. So, yes, he did get paid about $600,000. And the Soviets, then the Russians said they had an escrow account available for him in an international bank of about $800,000. But all Hansen ever collected himself was 600000 which is which not a lot of money. It's not a lot. It's not a little, but it's not nearly as much as others made. And it's certainly not reflective of the actual value of the information provided. Mm. And if Hansen had demanded more, there is no question. No investigator who worked this case told us anything other than the following. If Hansen had asked for four times that amount, he'd have gotten it. If he'd asked for mm. five times that amount, he'd have gotten it. And there, and he never did. So he was the best bargain the Soviets ever had. Now, there's a nuanced <laughs> part of this. When he was in federal prison, he wrote a letter to a friend of his. And all of this is discussed in our podcast. Um, part of it comes out in episode eight in which he said, you know, what I did wasn't really so bad because what I was doing mostly was evening things out. I was giving the Soviets and the Russians awareness that calmed them down, that made them less anxious, less prone to make a miscalculation. So I was, in a manner of speaking, this great hidden mediator mm. of the Cold War. I describe that because others have offered their interpretation of it as a kind of God complex that Hansen had developed for himself, a really elaborate and elaborately constructed rationalization. We are speaking with Major Garrett, uh, the host, a very distinguished American television journalist and writer, news uh, journalist. Uh, he has a major new podcast out, Agent of Betrayal. I want to thank our sponsor of this show, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, um, who, who are bringing us this. I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties, and I want to come back with Major, talk about his experience of podcasting, and also I, I can't resist asking him about uh, the realities of politics in America in, uh, in the last part of 2023. So don't go away, anyone. We'll be back with Major Garrett in a couple of seconds news the noise there is nuance insight liberties it's not just a journal of ideas it's a meteor of intelligent substance it's the place to be for engaged citizens politics opinion substance 
Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. All our guests, including Major Garrett, will get complimentary annual subscriptions. I think Major will enjoy it. It's edited just down the road from you in Washington, D.C. I'm speaking with Major Garrett, the host of Agent of Betrayal. Major, I hope you didn't dress up for this podcast. I think you're the the first guest I've ever had on the show in a suit and tie. Of course, I'm, I'm... teasing you yes these um, are my tv clothes these are my right. tv clothes for we sure have a real tv guy on the internet um <laughs> in all seriousness major some people with your kind of visibility might think why is major garrett doing the podcast is he slamming it why doesn't he just put a tv <laughs> show on what's been your experience of, of the of the podcast um the, the the podcast phenomenon why did you do it and what have you learned from it i have Andrew jumped into podcasting with both feet, both arms, all of my torso, every part of my body. Um, I'm in it, mind, body, and soul. I find the podcasting space a place of tremendous creative flexibility, and it allows me to do the kind of journalism that I most love to do, which is explanatory journalism or historical journalism or contextual journalism. and you mentioned it. I'm very grateful that I've written several books. Uh, I was a print journalist for 17 years before I got into television. So I haven't spent my entire life in television. And while I've been in television, I've always bumped up against the natural limitations of the television medium. And television is a very powerful way to communicate ideas and emotions and news. And I find tremendous value in it. But I also do bump up against its compression, its false compression of time, space, and otherwise. And podcasting has this great other space. And because it's immersive and because it's audio, people create their own imagination, their own picture of what you're talking about. And so I love the space because it is collaborative at that level. It is a theater of the mind place. And I created a political podcast almost eight years ago. We're in our seventh year called The Takeout, which is an interview show about politics, policy, and pop culture. That was the first venture of mine into podcasting. Then during lockdown, I created a daily podcast that vectored entirely off the Trump White House coronavirus task force briefings. Then I transitioned from that to a weekly documentary podcast where I delved into all sorts of different topics, most of which interested me, but with this intersection of politics, history, and adaptation to the COVID pandemic. And then at the end of that run, my team and I said, why don't we try this thing we've never tried before? Storytelling, an episodic serialized podcast, which I thought was the ultimate achievement in this space. Can you tell a story that's based on reporting not fiction, actual reporting. Can you do the reporting and then create a story that holds people and grabs them, not because the story itself is great, but because the reporting behind it is so solid and basically bulletproof. That was our goal. And I'd like to think we've achieved that in Agent of Betrayal. 
the the you are the chief um washington correspondent of cbs news uh it's a podcast that is distributed on, on cbs <laughs> is this a cbs podcast or is this major garrett independent podcast or is it a combination so it's obviously i'm an employee of cbs i i cannot do anything in the work environment or the workspace of CBS or during my day job or my after hours part of my day job that isn't related to CBS. My books are a separate thing, but I could never have done this by myself, not in a million years. I have a team of producers and they are all employees of CBS. I will tell you, Andrew, that we created this podcast, Agent of Betrayal, over two years entirely in our spare time. This was, to employ a rather recently coined term, a side hustle, a side hustle for all of us. This was never our job. Not one of my, it's not my job. CBS never asked me to do this. There was a lot of times when it was, that is to say the network, mildly, mildly, mildly enthusiastic about this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there were other times when it was kind of borderline hostile to it. Um, and nevertheless, we continued to pursue it. And once it was done, everyone looked at it and said, oh, wow, man, we're glad you did all this work. Let's make something special out of this. And then we brought in a production company, Neon Hum, who provided tremendous narrative arc assistance. If you like the music bed of this podcast, and I can't imagine how you couldn't, that's an original construct. The composition of the music is entirely original. This is not stock music for the podcast. So if you want an immersive experience that's not just my voice, not just the story, not just the reporting, but this sort of beautiful bed of music, all of that's original. So a lot of really key components were added to this. And Andrew, before, you know, I don't know how close we are to the end, but don't ever forget the sex part of this story. We got to get to the sex part. Yeah, we uh, don't worry. I'm English. We don't forget about sex. Um, <laughs> so in a sense, uh, out here uh, uh, in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, uh, Major, this was a skunks works project, essentially, in the way that yeah. you, you sort of work within the company in some ways, if not to blow up the company, certainly to challenge many of its conventions. How, how big was the team? Uh, myself and four others. And they were all CBS full timers all, and they were yes. doing with with, with 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 all really, really important jobs. Uh, one of the producers uh, works for Face the Nation and also is on our politics unit, uh, two of them our White House producers, and one of them is our senior audio producer. So everyone has massively engaged full-time jobs. I have a relatively highly visible full-time job. So we really did all of this in our spare time, weekends, after work. Um, we'd weave it in uh, an interview or something uh, at 9 a.m. or something, uh, skipping around, and but always having to hold down everything else. We could never push off anything that was daily or assigned for this. We always and there had is to no revenue. Do you have revenue? Do I personally know? Not not you, but does this show? Uh, so uh, it's part of the CBS inventory. Uh, and because of its success, it will increase the value of that inventory. So in general, uh, that is a value added. But I won't, I won't see anything at, of that beyond what I uh, receive in my normal contra contractual 
compensation. Yeah, we, we won't get into that. Let's talk <laughs> sex. Much more interesting, uh, Major. Yeah. You mentioned on the side. All you guys did it on the side. I hope mm -hmm. you just did the podcast on the side. Um, what's the sexual element here? I know that um, he had one or two girlfriends. There was a stripper in one of your shows. Was mm -hmm. he a, a frustrated suburbanite that ultimately just wanted to meet a lot of young women and use the money the, the Russians gave him to spend on prostitutes? That would be the easy description of what you would assume when you would say, oh, there's this guy who lives in suburban Northern Virginia. He's an FBI agent. He's a spy for the Soviets and he gets some cash. He doesn't know what to do with it. That's what you would assume. And you'd be somewhat close to the truth, but not nearly close enough. So yes, you mentioned stripper. Her name is Priscilla Sue Gailey. Uh, she doesn't regard herself as a stripper. She regards herself as an exotic dancer, someone who loved to dance, who found her only real enjoyable life expression in dancing. And she was befriended by Robert Hansen, not for sex. Their relationship was entirely platonic the entire time it went on. And for the bulk of that time, Priscilla Sue Gailey, who we interviewed at length, talked to us more than she talked to any other entity who ever looked into this story. She couldn't understand why, why she assumed because it had been her entire life's experience. Any man who comes on to her just wants to have sex with her because she's a gorgeous exotic dancer. And mm. in her heyday, she most definitely was. She was voted the most beautiful exotic dancer in Boston before she came to Washington. And she was well-known and well-liked and well-admired, uh, for all of her, let us say, attributes while she was a dancer here in Washington. So she was accustomed to guys coming on to her and always going straight to the sexual angle. Robert Hansen never did. For a time, early on, because her father had left her as a very young child, she wondered if Robert Hansen might be her long-lost father. And that was something that she had to sort of cope with. But she discovered over time he wasn't. And he was gentle and kind and never pushed the sexual edge with her at all in any way as a matter of fact even when she would try and enthusiastically just a, as a friend to hug him he would always clench up and push her away so she never understood exactly what this was about and he showered her with gifts he bought her a car a sapphire necklace all sorts of these things and as you hear from her in the episode entitled priscilla which is episode three it was the greatest, most enjoyable princess-like year of her life. And we gave Priscilla a lot of time to talk about her recollections of this period of time in her life because in the retelling, Andrew, of this story, she's always reduced with that judgmental and sort of uncompromisingly negative term stripper. That's all she is. And she was a woman who had a job. Her job was to be an exotic dancer, and it gave her great joy and a sense of freedom and a sense of creativity that was deeply personal to her. And Robert Hansen came into her life like a whirlwind, and she said her whole entire lifetime to sort of look back on it and try to figure out what was going on. And it's taken her many years, but ultimately the conclusion she came to is that he was setting her up for something. He was going to use her to do a dead drop or do something in the surveillance mm -hmm. world that would compromise her, might get her in trouble, might get her killed. As she said, I was going to be the slaughter girl. I was going to be someone he would just throw away. And that realization 
come has come to her late in life, but has a dimension of tragedy to it. And so we wanted to give her plenty of time to talk through and come to grips with her assessment of who Robert Hansen was in her life and what he ultimately probably was up to. The other sexual part of this story is much closer to home, much more intimate, and I think much more monstrous. It would have been very conventional. Come on. You're an FBI agent. You're bored. You have sex with a stripper. Okay, whatever. No, no. Let's think about it in a different way. Robert Hansen has a best friend who we interview at length in the podcast. His name is Jack Hoshauer. For reasons that defy explanation, Robert Hansen, who's married to his wife, Bonnie, they have six children together. Outwardly in the suburban life he lives in Northern Virginia, he is an upright, completely solid suburban father, goes to all the recitals and the plays and the ball games, helps the kids with their homework, all this sort of stuff. But yet there's this other part of Robert Hansen in which he invites his best friend, Jack, to watch him having sex with his wife. First, mm. on the deck outside their house, so he can look in through the window, but then Jack complains, well, it's too cold out there. So being a techie and a computer guy, well ahead of his time, by the way, Hansen sets up a closed-circuit camera in his bedroom and wires it to a TV in the basement. So Jack Hoshauer can watch the show, that's how they both described it, the show with all the creature comforts of the basement. Mm. You can hear Jack Hoshauer, Robert Hansen's best friend, talk about this at length in the, in the podcast. It's mind-blowing. Also, in the late 90s, when the internet was just a thing, and open source writing wasn't nearly as revealing as it is now, or even was 10 or 15 years ago, Robert Hansen wrote open source pornography about his wife under his name. I mean, it's wow. like, what? Yeah, I, even I'm speechless on that one. Even John Le Carre would be speechless on that right, one. And finally, right. uh, very, very odd guy. And certainly, you're not going to be the last person to comment on it. He, he died. I don't think we can even say, unfortunately, uh, earlier this year. I don't think anyone will miss him. Uh, maybe the Russians, but nobody else. Uh, he is, of course, as you suggested at the beginning, um, Major, an accomplished liar, brilliant liar, mm -hmm. just like all the great spies or yep. the worst spies, the most successful spies. Your last book, which you co-wrote, was called The Big Truth, uh, about lying also, mm -hmm. uh, 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 upholding democracy in the age of the big lie. These are two sides of your life, writing about politics, being the CBS political guy in DC, mm -hmm. obviously covering Trump and the election deniers, and then doing this show uh, about Hanson, another accomplished liar. Are there connections uh, major between the cult of the big lie on uh, uh, amongst the, 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 the Trump crowd in the United States? and the story of uh, Robert Hansen, or are they parallel liars? Well, I think there is one commonality, one thing that holds them together, one thing that is, doesn't explain everything, but it explains more than a little, inadequacy. Mm. At the core of the big lie about the 2020 campaign is a sense of inadequacy. Trump couldn't have lost. My guy couldn't have lost. It's impossible for my guy to have lost. 
Because if he lost, there's something inadequate about him. And if there's something inadequate about him, there's something inadequate about me. And so every different variation of the big lie, votes were flipped. There was a satellite involved. No, there were three satellites involved. No, there was a voting mechanism that was owned by Hugo Chavez. No, no, no. It was uh, imported ballots from China. Whatever dimension of that big lie came along, it was accessible and reaffirming because it explained away the inadequacy. For Robert Hansen, I think there was a core sense of inadequacy about himself and this time he spent as an agent in place always and perpetually allowed him to say, I'm smarter than everyone around me. Everyone around me is dumb. I'm always smarter because I'm the one maneuvering. I'm maneuvering the Soviets. I'm maneuvering around my bureau. I never, as long as I'm a spy, an agent in place, inadequate. I think that is the one common thread. And that underlines, of course, the importance of media uh, and media yep. telling the truth. You Earlier in your career, you, you, you worked for Fox. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for, for eight are years. Are you concerned? I don't want to point any fingers, Major, but are you concerned with some media getting seduced by the liars of one camp or another? Or do we need to be particularly careful these days to uphold democracy? Do you have, as a major media figure, do you have a particular responsibility to tell the truth, do you think? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's all we're about. And, and tr truth is not as easily defined as it used to be. Um, that is to say, when I present information, whether it's in a book form or when I was a magazine writer or as a television journalist or in the space of a podcast, I can assert things that I have proven and reported to ground, meaning I have verified information that substantiate that fact. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's truthful to my audience. I've sat in at least one focus group with people who deny the 2020 election results and are convinced it was stolen. And we've gone through all manner of facts and figures and they look at them and say, no, I will not accept them. So with that comes this sort of sidebar commercial tug. Well, if truth and perceptions of truth are fungible and commercial, maybe you get tugged in that direction. I do think that's a danger for all in the media space because there is a commercially tugging aspect of truths that are believed and where we have to cement ourselves, meaning journalists, is in that space a verifiable fact-based truth regardless of the commercial consequences. And that is an increasingly difficult space to hold.